You're listening to a chapel service recorded at Asbury Theological Seminary in Wilmore, Kentucky. For more information, visit asburyseminary.edu. If, if you would um, stand to ask your question and uh, articulate well, so every with, with a smaller group in here, sometimes uh, it's difficult to hear, particularly when you're sitting down there, but articulate it so the rest of the group can hear your question, but of course, especially so that uh, Dr. Wright can hear your question. Who wants to be first? Baptism for the dead. Oh, it's important, but yeah. All I do at this point is to rehearse the normal views, which you can find out in the commentaries as well as I can. I mean, and, and what the commentators tend to say is, well, there's this possibility and that possibility, and we really don't know. I mean, the it's a frustrating thing about Paul. There are many passages in Paul where he gives you a one-liner, which by itself is quite dense and incomprehensible. Sometimes we're lucky... And there's another passage elsewhere in Paul where he explains what that means. Sometimes we're not. I mean, First Corinthians 15:57, he says, the sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. And we say, what? And he says, just give me another year or two and I'll write that up. And you get Romans 7, you know, which explains what it means. If, if it is indeed an explanation, which I think it is. Um, but we, he never does that with baptism for the dead. So, you know, it looks to me as though it could be, conceivably. I mean, the, the option I'm not so keen on is that they are people being baptized on behalf of dead people from way back when, ancestors, you know, I mean, there's, there's, when we think about ancestor cults and things, I think we tend to think about sort of tribal Africa or whatever, but actually the Greco-Roman world was full of ancestors who were all over the place, and, and, and tomb cults and so on were very important and powerful things in any society like that. Um, now, so people might be saying, you know, I had this great-great-great-grandfather and I want to be baptized on behalf of him so that he will be saved, whatever. I think it's more likely that these are people who had become Christians but had then died without being baptized. That's problematic because it looks as though baptism took place fairly swiftly following upon conversion. Um, so either of those does have problems. <clears throat> and it's not quite clear that Paul is actually validating or justifying the practice, um, but nor he's certainly not criticizing him. I, I mean, he's not slow to tell the Corinthians, you do A, B, and C, and you jolly well shouldn't be doing that, you know, in uh, 11 and so on, about um, the Eucharistic practice. So if he'd said, I hear you're baptizing people on behalf of the dead, now you jolly well shouldn't do that, and here's three, three reasons, then we'd know. But he doesn't. So I think it looks as though he's saying, um, okay, this is fair enough, but what it means is, that these dead people are going to be raised again. And it's very, you see, it's like the debate with the Sadducees, Jesus' debate with the Sadducees. For us, because we have lived for so long in the Western world with a Hellenized, so-called spiritualized view of life after death in a disembodied fashion. Yeah, I was doing a radio talk show once on Good Friday and somebody phoned up and said, look, I hope to go to heaven when I die and I won't be taking my body with me, so why should Jesus have taken his body with him? And I thought, oh my goodness, you know, it's going to take about a week to unscramble that and here we are on live radio because there's just so many misunderstandings all sloshing together there. Um, but, but for Paul... It's not a matter of saying, be baptized on behalf of this dead person so that they can get out of purgatory and cross over to heaven or something like that. If there's any point in doing anything for the dead, it's because they're going to be raised to a new bodily life. He is such a physicalist, Jewish, Pharisaic thinker that that's the only point about thinking about the dead. That's then like the Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob thing, where in Luke 20, you know, they are alive to God but that's not all they're going to be. Because they are still alive in God's presence, God is going to raise them from the dead. I said in Ben's class yesterday that the best contemporary illustration of what's going on is the computer one. Uh, this is from John Polkinghorne, who says what happens at death is that God downloads our software onto his hard drive, and then at the resurrection we get new hardware to run the software again. Yeah, that's, that's quite a good illustration. 
That, that's the best we can do. And, you know, well, anyway. Yes? How long have we got? Um, the New Testament is interestingly ambiguous on whether the resurrection involves everybody or only Christians. In John's Gospel, chapter 5, Jesus says, those who've done good to the resurrection of the righteous, those who've done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And it's very interesting that throughout the first two centuries of the church, resurrection and Judgment are very, very closely aligned together. Look at Justin, look at Tertullian. Their treatises on the resurrection are almost as much about the importance of future judgment and of God doing it properly as they are about the fact of physical resurrection. And, you know, it's very interesting. I haven't read much about this, and if some of you know literature which explores this, I'd like to see it. But it just occurs to me reading those texts that if you step away from bodily resurrection, in terms of the historical development of, of theology in the first couple of centuries, you're stepping away from judgment into either the pagan world where the shades just go off and do whatever shades do and it's rather boring but it's all the same for everybody, or the Elysian fields which you'll get to via mystery religion or Gnosticism. But there's no sense of there being a reckoning, an accounting and where you get the sense of the reckoning and the accounting it's very closely concerned with Resurrection. So, uh, that stuff in John 5 does make a lot of sense. However, when Paul talks about the resurrection, it is again and again the transformation of our bodies. That's what's going on at resurrection. And that is clearly something that happens to Christians. He will change our lowly body to be like his glorious body. And he says we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ and receive the things that we've done in the body, whether good or bad. And that really appears... <clears throat> that as in 1 Corinthians 3, he's talking about Christians. And knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade other people, First Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians 5. But 1 Corinthians 3, I think, is really a vital passage for understanding the resurrection, because what you build today with gold and silver and precious stones will last into God's future, which is an awesome thing. Um, and he just doesn't say whether he thinks that non-Christians will get raised in some different, non-glorious way in order to be judged. And it may be that he would say, if pressed with that question, you know, that it's a non-question or we don't have the right language or, or something. Because you get the same ambivalence in Judaism. Some Jewish texts which say everyone's going to be raised, uh, the, the wicked in order to be damned, uh, damned as, as new-bodied people, and those who say, no, the righteous will be raised and the rest will just be left where they are. So um, I, I try to insist when talking about the future that all Christian language about the future consists of a set of signposts pointing into a fog. The signposts are not the reality. The biblical signposts truly point towards God's true future, but we mustn't mistake the signposts for the reality. We can't see into that fog, but if we follow the signposts, we'll get to where we're meant to be going. That's the best we can do. Great question. Yes, over there. Yeah, yeah. That, that, that's an enormously important question. I mean, if you read the work of Hans Frey, the late theologian from Yale, um, it seems to me Frey was really way out further than what I said, but that was actually his starting point, not his ending point as well. You know, that because of the resurrection, all other epistemologies are useless, and you can't do this stuff by historical means, etc. And I'm not even sure I understand how to talk with somebody like Fry on that. When I gave some of these lectures in Yale three years ago, um, where Fry had used to teach, I said at one point, you know, I don't know if I've understood Fryer right, and please will somebody 
tell me. And afterwards, when we had a talkback session with the faculty, a couple of them said, um, actually, we never understood him either. So I was, <laughs> I was really rather comforted. But I mean, there is a very, very, very serious issue there, because at what point, if you go that route, does the study of Jesus or the study of Christian theology collapse into being a private game? where we as theologians are simply going around our own little charmed circle without any purchase on outer reality. And if we go there, have we not created a new sort of dualism? Have we not abandoned the world to go to hell? You know, it seems to me that it's precisely the embrace of God's world, the God so loved the world that he gave, that gives us an epistemological agenda um, a historical research which is based on an epistemology of love. Now, I've, I've only just started to explore that stuff, but I, I suppose my own story is one of trying to interface with the academy. Because you know, I mean, all the fuss about the empty tomb is a way of saying, well, it's difficult to talk about the resurrection body of Jesus. And that's right, it is. But we can at least ask the question, well, one way of telling what sort of an event it was is to say, was the tomb empty or wasn't it? It's quite a sensible question. Um, and as historians, we can talk about that. Because as far as I can see, if the tomb was still full of Jesus' body, uh, unless you take Crossan's theory about the body being eaten by dogs, which I think is just fantasy, then I, I think you have to say, uh, as Christian apologists from the very beginning have said, that if the Jewish authorities had had problems with what the apostles were doing, they could have gone and produced the body. Somebody would have known. Somebody would have given the game away. Um, and that in any case, if the early church had... Um, done what people did with bodies that were buried like that with spices and shrouds and so on they would have waited for somewhere between nine months and two years they would have gone back found the bones folded them up put them in an ossuary that you know that it wasn't a final burial it was the first stage of a two-stage burial and then somebody would have said um excuse me what did we mean when we said he was raised from the dead you know so that, as historians we can and must talk about that stuff with any historian anywhere because the question of why did Christianity begin and why did it take the shape it did is a question that any historian, be they Buddhist, Muslim, Jewish, agnostic, atheist, must address. The rise of the church demands an explanation. This is the one the early Christians give. So you can address it as a historian, but then what we discover as we address it, I believe, is that we discover things which then actually remake the very methods that we were using. That's a very difficult position to be in, but it seems to me an authentically Christian position to be in. And actually it's precisely the route that Thomas goes in John 20. He wants to touch. Jesus invites him to touch. But then he sees, and that's enough, and then Jesus says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You know, touching would have been okay, and that's, in a sense, what we're trying to do as historians. But then the, the, the route that that takes us is to a point where there is a sort of seeing and there is a sort of belief. Well, you know, th this is very deep stuff, but that, that's where it's taking us, I think. Three questions. Plink, plink, plonk. Yes. Mm -hmm. Oh, and you can go on. Um, you know, Luke has all the appearances in Jerusalem. Matthew has them in Galilee, or most of them in Galilee. John has both Galilee and Jerusalem. So John is just a later harmonizing, isn't he? Um, or you could say with John A.T. Robinson, well, some of the Gospels say there were appearances in Galilee, some in Jerusalem, and John clearly knows that there were both, so he records both. I mean... I, I said that if we start with there, which is where most writers about the resurrection have started, we quickly get bogged down, and then people draw this quite spurious conclusion that nothing happened. Um, now, the usual response within orthodox apologia is to say, get five people who've just witnessed a road accident to describe what they just saw, and any judge and jury will tell you that one will say there was a red car going fast in this direction, the other one will say, no, it's a blue car, and anyway, there was a red car going in that direction. And from all that, you don't deduce that nothing happened. You merely deduce that, oh, you know, what was all this? We, we saw two, two people there, and, and what, was, what was happening there? And it looks as though, particularly from the Johannine account, which is, after all, the longest and fullest, uh, 
that people were going to and fro to the tomb, and Peter and John and women and so on. And if you've been in Jerusalem early on a morning with people going to and fro through narrow streets, it's perfectly easy to envisage, as John Wenham did in his book Easter Enigma, different goings to and fro, to and from different houses, people going to the tomb, running back breathlessly. You know, they they didn't have mobile phones. They couldn't keep in contact. Now, in the middle of all of that, it doesn't surprise me that one says we saw an angel or a young man, another says there were two. After we get that in, in Matthew frequently, and of course scholars normally say this is Matthew doubling Mark's singletons. You get two blind men um, uh, at Jericho instead of one, and you get two donkeys for Jesus to ride on instead of one. Now, some people say this is just Matthew doing a literary trick, and some people say, well, Mark has told the story in a simpler form. They saw somebody there who said something, and somebody else tells it in a fuller form. Actually, there are two people there, and one of them said, you know, I maybe I'm naive, I just don't lose any sleep over that. It seems to me there is a bigger picture within which these little slippages are precisely what you find not in a story that's been cooked up 50 years later in order to convince folk, but in a story which has been told breathlessly, artlessly. That's just the way so-and-so told it the first morning. And if you're rushing back from a, a, a suddenly discovered empty tomb and telling friends that the unthinkable may have occurred or something terrible has occurred and you don't know what it is, you don't stop to think in precise details. You haven't got a policeman sitting there saying, you sure there weren't three or whatever, you know. Um, and the way that the oral tradition works is that once the story has been told in a certain way three or four times, it sticks with those people. And once somebody else's story has been told in a certain way four or five times, that sticks with those people. And they go on telling the story that way. That, that's, that's where I go with it. But part of my whole strategy in these lectures and in the project which is based on these lectures is precisely to outflank those problems and set them with the much larger question that unless you say something like this happened at Easter, you really can't explain the rise of the early church. So that's where I go with that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. It, it is very interesting because this is a form of a question which I'm often asked about doing historical Jesus research or indeed fresh research on Paul. We know so much more about the first century Jewish world than people in, say, the third or fourth or fifth centuries, which with the possible exception of a few like Jerome who actually lived there and tried to soak themselves in it, um, and Origen, who is a great sort of Old Testament commentator as well. But mostly the early church, and certainly the medievals and the reformers and so on, really didn't know nearly as much about first century Judaism as we do. And that puts us in an extraordinarily privileged position. And, you know, I, I criticize post-enlightenment biblical scholarship, but there is a huge amount to be grateful for. We can understand what things really meant. Now, I, I, the force of your question is well taken that we should not for a moment therefore lapse into a kind of Christian version of the Enlightenment superiority complex imagining that everybody who lived before the rise of historical consciousness so called were just stupid you know because that really wasn't the case just as with medieval cathedral builders who knew more about acoustics you know where a medieval cathedral is built you don't need one of these things they're designed to carry the human voice very nicely, thank you. Um, they, they knew a lot of stuff that we've forgotten. And in the same way, you know, C.S. Lewis talks about the value of reading old books. He says they made mistakes, but they didn't make our mistakes. And we need to go back and read them because they are getting some things right that we are getting instinctively wrong. And for instance, I would go to a great commentator like John Calvin. Now, that may be a bit of a cheat because Calvin is maybe the exception because he really was a historian and really knew his Hebrew and really wanted to get back and think into their world. But out of that, he came up with you know, this wonderfully powerful creation and new creation theology, as I understand it. And I would say, you know, go read Augustine and people like that, or, or indeed some of the great medieval fathers, Aquinas and so on. Their theologies of creation and of new creation 
were incredibly sophisticated. And our post-historical consciousness has often been really trivial in terms of its theology um, because we've just grubbed around with details and looked up words in dictionaries and haven't stopped to say, what are we saying about God and the world here? Um, so, you know, there's a huge amount to learn there while at the same time lots of new stuff to take on board. But that's a, that's a delicate balancing act and it's appropriate that we raise the question from time to time. Who was, yeah. Well, I, I yes. Uh, anything, yes. Anything I said down that line, they could easily respond with a two quoque, you know, that, that if I say they do this because of reasons in their church or in their past or in their private lives or whatever, they could come back at me and say, yeah, and look at you, you're just a conservative Anglican priest, so of course you take that line, don't you? And, and I have to say, and, and I said this once on a radio program I was doing with Marcus, um, I said, you know, you can't actually say that because it's not that I believe this stuff because I'm an ordained clergyman in the Church of England. The reason I am sustained in this very difficult call to be an ordained clergyman in the Church of England is because I believe this. If I genuinely stop believing, and this is from my heart, if I genuinely stop believing that Jesus was bodily raised from the dead, I would hang up my dog collar, not that I've been wearing one this week, and go and do something more useful instead. You know, because Christianity is not a game. It's not a, it's not a hobby. It's either the greatest truth that ever mattered in the world, or it is very dangerous nonsense. There is no middle ground. And when I've debated with Mark particularly, who is a dear friend, and we've been friends since long before we ever started debating these things, and and that friendship has sustained us through some quite difficult times when we've just sort of locked horns, you know. Um, He just says, um, I don't think God does things that are that spectacular. He says, he talks about the limits of the spectacular. And I say, excuse me, how do you know what the limits of the spectacular are? You know, what what would count? And he goes just straight back to a Trolch-type epistemology. But I think at the heart of it, actually, it's very interesting stuff. And I, I came upon this, he and I were debating um, at the Naramata Center, which is a United Church of Canada center in British Columbia, um, last week of August, just a couple of months ago. And uh, one of the participants said, and Mark enthusiastically agreed, that he had been taught in his church not only that you didn't need to believe in the bodily resurrection, but that it was actually deeply damaging to a true faith to believe in the bodily resurrection because it implied a belief in a God who would step in and do funny things like this from time to time and then what you say about the Holocaust when God didn't do that. You know, That on the one hand, and then the second similar objection is that if you really did believe that that happened, this would make Christianity unique, and we know that, in fact, Christianity is one of many ways to God, many approaches to the sacred. Very interesting that at that, precisely that moment in the argument, Mark steps off God language and goes into the sacred language, which is a kind of much vaguer, less personal thing. And then you realize what the issues are in our contemporary world. And you see, Mark will say, and I've heard him say it many times, Jesus was one of the two greatest religious figures in the history of the world. And somebody will always ask, you know, he's a set-up, somebody will always ask, who was the other one? And he says, I don't know who the other one was. He says, as long as there are at least two, that's okay. You know, if it's the Buddha for you, that's fine. If it's Krishna for you, that's fine. Whatever. But he will not, because he, he, he is absolutely ideologically opposed to Christianity being exclusively true. And that would certainly be so for Crossan as well. Anything that appears to say that Christianity is in some sense true in a sense which leaves 
other religious traditions as less than that. Crossan uses extremely ugly language about it. I called him on, I called him on this. He said that something in my book, Jesus and the Victory of God, was obscene because it implied that Jesus had a critique of first century Judaism. I wrote him an email. I said, what do you mean obscene? And he cited an obscure meaning for the word obscene, which he claimed was, I can't even remember what he said. I looked it up in all the dictionaries available and it didn't exist. Um, I knew what he meant. He meant that this was saying that Judaism was out of line and that sort of thing that leads to the Holocaust, which is a grievous slur because actually it's those de-Judaized views of Jesus that you find in the Jesus Seminar that are the second cousin of what was going on in Germany in the 30s. So, see, these are the big agendas which are going on. And so they can hear the historical argument and neither Crossan nor Borg has ever answered that historical argument. All they've done is step out of the way, Crossan by reconstructing this fantasy world of female lament and male scribes and their traditions somehow merging and producing this extraordinary thing in the Gospel of Peter from which the canonical, you know, give me a break. That is just so much more incredible than what you find in the Gospels, actually. It's a way of preserving a kind of, dare I say, post-enlightenment, late liberal modernist ideology, which is very popular on both sides of the Atlantic, but in this country it has captured the minds and hearts and souls of many, many mainstream churches. So that not only in those mainstream churches is belief in the bodily resurrection of Jesus only one option among many, it is an option which is actually preached against as being damaging to authentic Christian faith. That's where you guys are right now. Hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have a student right now who asks me that question every week in my Paul and Caesar class. Um, and it's clear uh, she's not coming from where you're coming from. She, she badly wants Paul to be telling the non-Jewish story, which is just like the story his hearers were telling. But, and, and she always says, because that's how communication theory works. You have to sit in the other person's seat in order to communicate with them. But actually, this last week, some of the others in the class got on her case and said, you know, what's really going on, and, and pushed her on this. And it became clear what the agenda was, that she wants there not to be one exclusive story. And if you if you say that the Jewish story is the story that embraces all the others, then post-modernity just screams for help and says, ah, mummy, it's a meta-narrative. It's what you warned me about. You know, we don't like those. It's a monster under the bed. And you see, the Old Testament and intertestamental Judaism, okay, th th there are passages. There there's, the, there's the very scathing passage in... in uh, Sorry, Amos, Micah. I want to say Amos, and I'm frightened it's Micah. You know, uh, yes, I brought you up from Israel, and I brought the Philistines from Kaftor and the Egyptians from somewhere else. I do Exodus things all over the place for all sorts of people, you know. It's a way of saying, don't think that you are just the bee's knees because you had an Exodus. I do that kind of stuff before breakfast every day, you know. Um, there are passages like that, and there is the book of Jonah, and they matter, but they are held canonically within the large story which says that the creator of the universe is the redeemer of Israel and that what the creator of the universe does in and for Israel, he does for the world. Unless you're telling that story, you can cut Second Isaiah right out of your Bible and throw it in the trash can. Because that's what it's about. When God does for Israel what God is going to do for Israel, then the Gentiles will get blessed as well. Of course, the irony in the middle of Second Isaiah is Cyrus, the pagan king who God uses to do his purpose. But what God is doing is establishing the promises he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not establishing the promise that Cyrus's gods might or might not have made. 
And so you then find Paul drawing precisely on Isaiah 11, Psalm 72, passages like that, to say, now that God has raised up the Messiah, who is the king of Israel, he is the ruler of the whole world. Josephus gives as the interpretation of Daniel 7, at least so I've argued, and I think it sticks, um, Josephus gives us the interpretation of Daniel 7, the belief that there would arise from Judea one who would be the ruler of the world. Josephus then deconstructs it by saying this is a prediction about Vespasian, if you please, who was besieging Jerusalem in Judea at the time when he was hailed as emperor of the world. But obvious why he says that, because he's been given a pension by Vespasian's son Titus. Um, but clearly what was going on in Judaism was the belief that there would come a Jewish king who would be lord of the world. That goes back to David. The Edomites, everyone else within sight. Solomon, his son, established this kingdom and the kings and queens of the earth brought their treasures to Jerusalem to come to hear Solomon's wisdom. It's that vision, the king of Israel who's the king of the world. And that the kings of the world are corrupt and deceitful and distorting and out for their own power, etc. But the true king of Israel will bring God's justice to the world. This is the healing meta-narrative. Post-modernity would rather not be healed than have a controlling meta-narrative. Isn't that scary? They, they have to say all this stuff to make it seem worthwhile that they brought me here. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Mm. <laughs> oh goodness, goodness. I, I, I don't know. I that's that's a very difficult question. Um, probably number one is you know um, get rid of the television. Um, uh, I, that's, that's a semi-serious thing. I, 99% of what's on television, even in the UK, is, is trivial and unnecessary. Um, occasionally as a leisure activity, I mean, I, I often watch news bulletins, weather forecasts, but that's about it. Um, uh, and occasionally I will watch some sport, just, you know, sometimes to hang out with my sons who will watch it. Um, but uh, I, I watch very little television. And sadly, I go to very few movies. My wife is a real movie buff, and she's always saying, yeah, you really should see this one. I look at the diary, when am I going to do that? You know. And when we do go to movies together, it's often a very creative husband and wife experience because we then discuss them and analyze them and get the themes and see what's happening, and, and that, that's very good. And it also helps me in terms of what little cultural criticism I do. But um, I don't have that much time. Um, it, you know, I think we each have our own vocation and don't try, for goodness sake, don't try to role model me. Um, find models, whether in individuals or in combinations of individuals, of people who are doing the sort of things that God seems to be calling you to do and, and find out how they do it. But we all learn at different paces. We all read at different paces. One of my closest friends, who is an extremely acute theologian, reads books at about a, you know, half or a quarter of the speed that I do, by, mean, by which I mean he goes very, very slowly. I read a book usually pretty fast, and I will make mistakes in my reading, but I just will zoom through and take some notes and go on to the next thing. He will actually decide which books to read, and he may take a week to read a 300-page book, and at the end of that, he has thought so many thoughts and had so many ideas as he's been going through that he's used that book as a kind of start for meditation. I very, very seldom do that with any book. Um, I, I, I read very far. And, you know, one just has to accept the gifts one's been given and develop them as best one can to God's glory. Um, but honestly, as a scholar... The only real advice I can give is to say that you do not know when you wake up in the morning and go to the library what you're going to find 
or which line of thought you will find yourself pursuing, it becomes enormously important to say your prayers before you go and to be in tune, in touch with the inner prompting of the Holy Spirit. That does not mean that all the thoughts you think will be infallible. They will not. You will have to correct later on down the track. But there will come a time when you're reading a text and you'll see a cross-reference and you'll think, should I or should I not follow this up? And there will be one day when you will just know in your bones, nope, that'll take me too far to the side, I've got to stick with this. And other times when you'll just feel, better look that up. And it'll be a passage you never thought of, and you'll say, I don't understand this, I need to find a commentary on it. And you'll go and find a commentary on it, and the commentary will tell you 13 things that you'd never even thought of asking, which set off all sorts of other trains of thought. And if you hadn't followed up that little reference, that would never have happened. Every day as a scholar consists of lots of possibilities like that, some of which God will want you to follow up and some of which you won't. And you will not know ahead of time. This is the fun of the game. But it's scary because, you know, you could be wasting your time for years. Basic research is when you're doing what you don't know you're doing. If that wasn't so, it wouldn't be research. Just pray, trust, and be faithful. And, and, and God will surprise you. <laughs> Certainly if my experience is anything to go by, yes. Yeah, um, we have in the New Testament obviously very little that tells us what happened to Jesus, so to speak, in between Friday night and Sunday morning. We have a little passage in 1 Peter 3, which somebody nailed me with yesterday, and I, I said then and I say now that I really don't know that I have a good exegesis of the preaching to the spirits in prison. Um, it's not a passage I've done a lot of work on, and I guess from the questions I'm getting sooner or later, perhaps sooner, I'm going to have to um, do some fooling around with that. Um, but obviously Jesus' body was in the tomb, at least I say obviously, I assume Jesus' body was in the tomb during that period. How you describe in terms of an anthropology who Jesus was, where he was during that period. I just think I wouldn't know where to start to do that. Um, when somebody I love dies, I believe that, as Paul says, we depart and go to be with Christ, for that is far better. And that is not a way of saying they're raised from the dead yet. They're not. They are with Christ. This is, you know... Jesus has downloaded their software onto his hard drive and the body is corrupting, but they are safe with him. They are loved. They are looked after. It is a, it is a blissful rest. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Paradise is the, 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 the garden of bliss where you go waiting for the eventual day. Paradise is not a final destination. It's a staging post. Now, post-ascension, this is where I say we have to learn to think in terms of a new ontology which is the double-sidedness of God's one single world. This is a way of having my cake and eating it in the debate between monism and dualism. And I think we have to do that, actually. Because if you go too far down the monist route, you actually have real trouble in all, in all sorts of ways. If you go too far down the dualist route, you have even worse trouble. Your world just falls apart. Somehow, I believe that when it says in, in Genesis, God made heaven and earth, this is a way of saying that God's good creation has two basic dimensions. There may be sub-dimensions within that, but there are two basic dimensions. And these are interlocking spheres of reality. And the heavenly dimension is normally opaque and invisible to the earthly dimension. There are spectacular moments in the Bible when 
the curtain is pulled aside and people see. You know, when John says, I looked and there in heaven was an open door, as a small boy reading Revelation, and even as a teenager reading Revelation, I assumed that that meant he looked up in the sky and, you know, just around where you can see a 747 in the distance, there was a little door open and somehow he was able to see through that door what was going on up there. I don't think it's like that. It's much more scary. I think it's that heaven and earth are present realities here and that what happens is that in the middle of our present reality is an invisible curtain which under certain circumstances God will draw back and we will see what is there. And that's what happened to Elisha's servant, remember when the, the mountain was full of horses and chariots so far around about the prophet. Now, what, where I then go with that in terms of talking about the so-called second coming and please note that the language of second coming is peripheral in the New Testament. The New Testament talks about Christ's appearing, talks about his parousia, which means his royal arrival. That's a kingly word. There are lots and lots and lots of references of parousia in, in, in Caesar, Caesar's world. It's what happens when the king arrives. And talks particularly in Romans and Revelation about God's renewal of heaven and earth. The whole created order will be renewed, and the central figure within that renewal will be Jesus. And this is where our language again is a set of signposts pointing into a fog, that there will come a time when the curtain will be drawn back, when heaven and earth will no longer be opaque to one another, when God's two-sided single reality will be one reality at last, for which Revelation uses the image of, uh, of marriage, scary image to use there, the, the two becoming one, and the central figure being Jesus in person. Now, we don't have language to do justice to that. We have a set of signposts that point towards it. That's about as good as we get, I think. Yeah. Well, that's certainly part of it, but yes, I, I do not know. I I love the resurrection passage. I preach about it, given half a chance. Um, you may observe that I chickened out of doing very much of this in Jesus and the Victory of God, and and that's that's a failing in that book, which actually no reviewer has pointed to. But I make you a present of it. Um, it it's it, you know I should have said something about what Mark nine one nine two following was all about, and I think I just included it right at the very end as a little hint. I do think it isn't, and this wasn't your question, but I think it's an important thing to say. I do think it isn't a misplaced resurrection appearance. It's a standard Bultmannian thing. This is a resurrection appearance born out of due time, which then enables people to say, so the resurrection appearances were the sort of thing you'd expect from the Jewish tradition, Jesus shining like the sun, etc. And it's interesting that it's Moses and Elijah. In some ways it should have been Enoch and Elijah, because they were the two who didn't die. And they might still be around somewhere, you know. Now, some Jewish traditions had Moses not dying either, but Deuteronomy is pretty darn clear that he did die and that God buried him. So there's an oddity there as well. Um, yeah, it seems to me odd, though, to say that Moses and Elijah there had the full resurrection body because, yeah, 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 that, that, they, that they really don't yet, um, unless we do something quite different with the concept of time from anything I see happening anywhere else. Um, I don't know, I don't know. I, I really, it's one of those things where I, I feel I ought to go back and read some more stuff on it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Yes, yes, possibly. That's that's pushing it, pushing the boat out quite a way, isn't it? But it, but it, it isn't inconceivable. I mean, it is such an odd story that you've got to say odd things about it, and that's absolutely fair enough. Um, but I think as well, you see, the trouble is, as Christians, we often short-circuit the argument, and people say, there you are, that's the revelation of Jesus' divinity. And even Albert Schweitzer seems to fall into that trap. He reverses the transfiguration and Peter's confession at Caesarea Philippi. And he says the reason Peter knew that Jesus was the Messiah, which is a very glorious title for Schweitzer, is because Peter had seen the transfiguration. The typically brilliant but wrong Schweitzer move. Um, what happens to them is that they all shine like Moses shone when he came down from the mountain. It doesn't make Moses either the Messiah or divine. It just means he's been with God. Yeah, Moses is just the face, and now it's everything, clothes and all. Yes, that's true. That's, but it's in, in continuity with that. You know, they're on the mountain, and, and uh, this is my beloved son, listen to him, which is a reference to Deuteronomy, um, the Lord will raise up a prophet like me, you must listen to him. Um, yeah, I'm just going around in circles, I'm sorry. I, I don't, don't have a great take on that. Um, this is one of, one of the best things about coming to a sharp place like this, is that every second question, I'm realizing, mm, yeah, there's more homework I have to do there. Thank you. Yes. Same, same answer. Same answer. It's, it's clearly alluding to Ezekiel 37, about the dead coming out of the tombs, and, and so on. But I have never read uh, an explanation which satisfies me. You know, if you want to say, yes, not only did Matthew mean it literally happened, but it did literally happen, um, then I, I can live with that as just a very odd phenomenon, like the darkness at noon and goodness knows what, because it is as though this is an event of such cosmic, literally earth-shattering proportions. But there's also almost a hint in Matthew that it's the earthquake that causes these dead bodies to, to get up out of their tombs, which is bizarre in itself. You know, there must have been lots of earthquakes, but they don't normally precipitate resurrections or resuscitations. Um, and, and are these temporary resuscitations, or are they actual resurrections? Um, it, it seems to me they're temporary resuscitations. At least that's the language that Matthew's using. But um, I, I really don't know. Um, I have a thing on the wall at home in the bathroom which says, never be afraid to say you don't know. And this is another of those occasions. Yes. Of, of mark, and, mark and priority, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. I, I am I'm agnostic about Q. That wasn't your question. I really do not know if there was a Q or not, and if so, what it contained. Um, I suppose I still am about 65 or 70 percent in favour of mark and priority. It's some years now since I did any detailed work to try to see what I think I think about that, and one of these days I must get back to it. Um, I remember hearing Dennis Niner, of all people, in a lecture in Oxford in the early 1970s say that he still believed in mark and priority, not because there were any good arguments for it any longer, but because he hadn't yet seen any good arguments for anything else. It was a very revealing comment from somebody who'd really built his life on <laughs> the older street, streeter-type source criticism. Um, and I think, if we are honest, that reflects something of where the Guild is. You know, there's a lot of very shrill scholarship saying Mark and Q, Mark and Q, that's it, Mark and Q. But then there are all these people like Farmer and Dungan and the whole of, of, of that uh, sort of Neo-Griesbach school who are saying, actually, you can explain the synoptics perfectly well by having Luke use Matthew and Luke use Mark. And some people are saying that you could do it, do it just as well by having Matthew first and Mark using Matthew. Um, it is very, very, very difficult because a lot of the arguments depend on if I were Mark sitting down with Matthew wanting to make a slightly shorter book, what would I do? We'll miss out the Sermon on the Mount for a start. And that, that is normally felt to be a reductio ad absurdum. Actually, I don't think it is a reductio ad absurdum because Mark isn't writing the sort of book in which you have 
the leisure to do that sort of Sermon on the Mountish thing. Mark is writing a short book to say, who is Jesus? Why did he die? Get on with it. Get out there. Do the stuff. And you're called to follow him. Uh, and, you know, end of conversation. And, and the thought that Mark might have stepped back from that to have something as large-scale and, 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 and teachy as the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, the closest he gets is the parable chapter in Mark 4. So, a lot depends on people's assumptions about evangelist motives. As soon as you switch the evangelist's motives, all sorts of other options might come up. Um, Morna Hooker wrote an article about this 20 years ago called In His Own Image, question mark, showing the way in which, um, you know, the old jibe was that the theologians had made Jesus in their own image, and she pointed out that there are all sorts of ways in which theologians are now making the evangelists in their own image. So that Streeter and his colleagues envisaged the evangelists like a group of Oxford dons poring over their sources, taking care to lose no scrap of evidence and keep everything, you know, arrange it all prettily. And as soon as you say they had some theology, some, some agendas of their own, some stories they wanted to tell, that image just crumbles into dust. So, um, the eyewitness thing really is neither here nor there. If somebody could prove to me, supposing they dug up some new documents, we always live in hope of new documents, you know, the facts are kind and we want more of them. Um, if somebody dug up some new documents, proving beyond a shadow of doubt that Matthew, Mark, Luke and John were none of them written till 85 AD at the earliest, I would say, well, I'm surprised I didn't think they were that late, but actually nothing changes because the validity of the Gospels depends on the coherence and the historical verifiability of the story they tell, not on whether they were direct eyewitnesses writing it. The validity of a new biography of Winston Churchill or FDR or anyone else doesn't depend on having someone been, been there at the time, but on the coherence of the story they tell and, of course, the rootedness in good documentation. But the only way we can tell that in the first century, because we haven't got their footnotes um, or their sources, is by saying, does the story they tell fit together? The normal post-enlightenment view was, no, it doesn't. And I've given half my life to arguing, yes, it does. So I really don't think we need to be worried too much about that. Likewise, you see, if somebody could find now copies of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John somewhere in the sands of Egypt where they might have been preserved, which could be carbon dated with exact accuracy to 50 AD, that of itself wouldn't prove that every word they wrote was true. It still depends on the historical task of putting it together. We probably have to stop. Sorry. I know we could stay here all day and, and keep going, but uh, Dr. Wright has a plane to catch uh, this afternoon, and uh, he has a lunch appointment, and so I think we need to, uh, to call this to a close. Thank you all for being here, and thank you, thank Tom. You. Thank you.